How is your work life going? Business, home, social? How about your health? Could you make some changes? Of course you could, but how and where to start? This is Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. In this program, we'll help you identify and make the changes in your life that need to be made. And by doing so, increase your potential for success. And now, here's your host, Hemda Mizrahi. Welcome to Turn the Page. I'm Hemda Mizrahi. I'm joined by Bobby Klink, an intellectual property attorney who is going to share his expertise on how you can avoid common intellectual property mistakes as a startup business or entrepreneur. Bobby guides startups and entrepreneurs on, as he puts it, harnessing the power of their intellectual property rights and reducing exposure to lawsuits or brand challenges in the marketplace. He's published two books on intellectual property law, The Entrepreneur's IP Planning Playbook, and Patent Litigation Primer. Bobby's working on a third book that will help entrepreneurs in thinking through their IP issues and developing a strategy from the start that will enable their businesses to thrive. Bobby, welcome to the show. I'm so honored to host you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'd like to talk about a personal interest that you have before we jump into common mistakes that entrepreneurs and startups make. I know that you have both a professional and personal interest in the craft beer industry, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, I brew my own beer in my backyard. It's something that I started doing, I don't know how long ago, it's probably been five years or so. I kind of did it on a lark. I saw a friend on Facebook post a picture of uh, him brewing some beer, and I said, hmm, why aren't we doing that? And I said, that's my brother-in-law, and that started us down a quest, and so I've been Brewing beer myself, I was actually quite close to trying to launch a a brand myself. And then because of some personal and professional challenges with uh, myself, but also with other people who were involved, we kind of put on the back burner. But through that, I, I keep up with the craft beer industry, which kind of dovetails nicely with my professional career because I see a lot of... Uh, interesting intellectual property issues come up in the beer industry. A lot of those come up in the context of the area of trademarks because there's really only so many puns you can make with uh, respect to the ingredients in beer. And those end up meaning that often uh, different breweries are using the same name for their beers. And so sometimes you see some disputes about it. So I keep up with that as a personal and semi-professional interest as well. And you're also talking about recipes and that's transferable certainly to many industries, this issue of uh, keeping recipes secret versus releasing them so that customers have a little bit more information. Yeah, and that's something that it, it's one of those issues where I see it and I, in my mind, as an intellectual property lawyer, I see the intellectual property aspects of this. You see a lot of uh, breweries, and this is a personal interest, I'm always curious, I taste a beer and I think I know what's in it, but I, I want to confirm or I, I taste something and I'm not quite sure what it is. So I'll go to the brewery website and different companies have made different choices. Some companies provide uh, pretty detailed information. They're never going to provide exact the exact makeup of their beer, but they will tell you, for example, all the different malts and all of the hops that are in it and what use, yeast they use and a bunch of other statistics about it that – uh, someone like myself who brews beer, then you know I can take that and uh, maybe replicate it for myself. Other breweries don't do that, and they keep it more secret, and I see it. And 
I recognize that maybe part of what they're doing is trying to keep a trade secret, try and make it so that a competitor can't then just take that information and create kind of a knockoff beer. That's a tension that companies will face throughout their life cycle where they will have to decide is the business interest in transparency and providing information to customers, especially in today's world where many customers, and I think a trend, especially among millennials of wanting to know a lot more about the products that they're using, they have to balance that with keeping certain information secret to keep a trade secret so that they can't have their product or service knocked off easily by a competitor. How do you advise clients along those lines? Well, candidly, that's one where I work with them and I explain to them the the legal issues, but they ultimately have to make a, a business decision. And it's a, a classic case. One of the things I work with my clients on is help them to understand that intellectual property is important and you need to be thinking about it, but you have to be careful not to allow it to become the tail that's wagging the dog. Intellectual property should serve your business purposes. And so uh, as a company, you have to make these decisions and it's a hard decision to make, but it's uh, ultimately one that the executives have to make based upon their knowledge of their customers and how important transparency is to their customers versus the value that they can get by maybe keeping some more information private and confidential. I would guess also that there's a lot beyond the ingredients that make something proprietary. Yeah, there's in different industries, you have all kinds of things that could make things proprietary or or a classic example of a trade secret, which is what we've been talking about with a recipe is a customer list. So a traditional entrepreneur will have their customer list and their their, uh, CRM database. That information, so long as you're taking reasonable steps to keep it confidential, is protected. So then if you have an employee who leaves, they can't just download that information, take it with them, and then use it to start a competing company. But there's any number of things that fall within that same area. There's a a lawsuit going on right now that is making news, at least I see it in the news. It's the Waymo versus, I don't know if it's Way or Way, I think it's Waymo versus uh, Uber. It's basically the self-driving car company that falls within Google's conglomerate has sued Uber, alleging that Uber bought a company that had been founded by a former Waymo executive who took, I think it's 1,400 or maybe 14,000 files with him when he left. And so they're alleging that he used that proprietary trade secret information to start this new company and that that is now the basis of Uber's self-driving car that it's trying to develop. Just this tip of the iceberg that you're presenting in the start of our conversation really, I think, offers a lot of enticement to learn more, a lot more about intellectual property because it seems that there's such a broad base of issues that go underneath this umbrella. Yeah, there are. There's a lot of issues that have to be addressed, but quite honestly, it's something that if you have the right kind of procedures in place, you should be in in pretty good shape as a company to be able to address these. And you also offer somewhat of a simplification, at least in terms of the focus of our conversation today, which is more about common IP-related mistakes that are specific to entrepreneurs and startups, and I would love to hear more about that. Yeah, there's a number of them. And One of the mistakes I I always start with actually is not really intellectual property law focused, but it's a mistake that I see made 
so often that I have to bring it up, and it's failing to get things in writing. I will often have clients or prospective clients come to me thinking that they have an intellectual property problem. And what I discover is actually what they have is just a basic contract or corporate formation problem. So for example, I had a prospective client come to me asking me some questions about whether this company should file for a patent on something. It was it had to do with a fashion uh, industry. And in talking to this prospective client, I learned that the company had two employees, basically, or two founders. One was the idea person who had come up with the design of this rather innovative um, piece of fa- dress of some sort. And then the other person was the business side, the person who was more of the traditional business person. And in discussing it, however, I found out they didn't have a written agreement in place. They had kind of a spoken agreement of who got what and what the percentages were, but they didn't have any document in writing. And that is a huge mistake. And it actually, in that case, could have had serious intellectual property issues because, among other things, the founder who had developed the idea, the design for this dress, had never signed a document that transferred the rights in that design over to the company. So if she had decided to leave the company and just say, I'm done with this, I'm leaving and going my own way, she would be the one who owned all the rights in that the dress design. And so that's a common example that I see, but it also comes up in just more traditional disputes that aren't IP related. There was a, a famous case actually in the context of a podcast where Adam Carolla, who's a media personality, had he started a podcast with a longtime friend. And we sitting here today have no idea what actually happened at the beginning, but they started this podcast. It became hugely successful, was making quite a bit of money. And then Adam Carolla at some point attempted to fire his friend who had worked for him. And his friend said, no, no, you can't fire me. I'm not an employee. I'm an owner. I'm a partner in this business, to which Adam Carolla disagreed. And they ended up having a court battle that went all the way to trial. They were trying the case when they finally settled under um, confidential terms. So we don't know what the settlement ultimately was. But the one thing I can say is that between the two of them, they spent way too much money on people like me in that fight. And they did that because they didn't have a written agreement that said what the roles were of the different people. So Assuming that Adam Carolla was right, that this other guy was just an employee, he should have had an agreement that said that, that said, you are just an employee, you don't own anything. On the other hand, assuming that his longtime friend was right, he should have had a written agreement that says, I own X percentage of this company. So that is the biggest mistake I see people make. It has implications with intellectual property, but also outside of the context of intellectual property. So you're talking about having a written agreement. You offered a couple of examples in terms of what's important to document. Ownership is important to document. Ownership distribution. Roles are important to document. What else would you include? Well, so let's back up. The first agreement you should have is essentially a if, – if you are not the only owner of your company, so if you're not just a solopreneur all by yourself, if there's anyone else involved, you need to have the ownership and management agreement. It can be done either as one agreement or multiple, and it really depends on what kind of entity you have. So if you have a partnership, that will 
lead to certain agreements. If you have a corporation with owners, that would be a different kind of agreement. But what you need to have is one or more agreements that define who owns what, what the responsibilities are, but then also you would want normally want to have what is called a buy-sell agreement as part of it that essentially says how how do you go about splitting it up if one person wants to leave or if just because of irreconcilable differences you can't continue to to work together and there are various options one of the classic examples is the it's kind of the equivalent of the old way that you have two children split something that they both want. You have one person split it and the other one gets to choose which piece they want. But in a buy-sell agreement, it's you have one person set the value and then the other person decides whether they want to buy or sell at that value. So that's one example, but you can choose different ways of doing it as well. And so that's those are basic things that need to be in the agreement. You would also need a transfer of intellectual property rights to be in writing. If you have patent rights, for example, or trademark or copyrights that have already been issued, that has to be transferred in writing. It can't be done orally. So those are things that need to be done in a written agreement. There are other issues, though, with I mentioned with employees. So if you have an employee, you should have a written agreement, especially if you're a startup, you should have a written agreement with all your employees that makes clear that they are simply employees, not owners, because otherwise there might be a question, especially in the context of a startup where it, it's pretty well understood that often people are putting in sweat equity in, in exchange for uh, some ownership interest in a company. So you need to define that. With, with respect to intellectual property rights, though, there are a couple of things with employees and independent contractors. You need to have written agreements with them. And again, you can do it as a single agreement, as part of an employment agreement, or you can have these standalone agreements. But you need to have the transfer of rights, again, from any employee so that if an employee has an invention or comes up with an invention in the course of their work, that they transfer that to the company. You also need to have confidentiality clauses that require them to use any confidential information they learn during the employment only for the benefit of the company. So that is to prevent them from learning information while working for you and then taking that confidential information and using it to compete. So those are the some of the common agreements that you should have that really almost every business should have. That was a pretty long list here. <laughs> Let me yeah. See. Although really what it comes up with what it comes down to are corporate formation and then employment agreements. And then you have some common theme themes in there of defining what everyone's role is and making sure that the company owns the intellectual property. So th those are the big highlight points. It sounds like then you're recommending that these things be put in place really prior to the launch of a company or pretty much at any stage if they haven't been covered yet. Yeah, I, I would. And so if, if, if on corporate formation documents, again, um, I don't recommend that people come and hire me or hire a business attorney in most cases to do these unless you're pretty far along in the process and might be moving towards um, a venture capital funding or some kind of uh, fundraising efforts. But if you're not there, just go to LegalZoom. Uh, quite candidly, when I was uh, looking to start my beer business, I'm pretty sure I went to LegalZoom to get um, the contract or the corporate formation documents. And they have a wizard that asks you a bunch of questions and then it kind of spits out a form agreement that has all the details that you need. So 90 to 95% of cases, that's going to be good enough. 
And just doing that will get you leaps and bounds beyond where you are now if you don't have an agreement. And, and I suggest that to people because, again, I don't know what the price is. I don't remember offhand, but it's not a lot. So I would rather people go and do that and get a an agreement that's pretty good rather than not have any agreement because they don't want to spend a ton of money to get a perfect agreement drafted, particularly for them by a business attorney. Bobby, I really appreciate this continuum because I think it's really helpful for business owners and entrepreneurs in different stages. So let's say you were suggesting then if someone's not if a company is not venture capital backed, or they, let's say they don't have a large source of initial funding, they're starting with a fairly small budget to go to LegalZoom for important documents. If you describe a continuum, let's say from, from that point to the point where someone might come and seek your consult, your guidance, what are the different stages, would you say, and resources that people can go to? Well, so what I would say is that, and and I'm not a perfect example because I don't really focus on business formation documents. There are lawyers who are who are specialists at that and handle that. And so, as you get to the point of wanting to really think about doing fundraising efforts beyond what I would call a friends and family fundraising, a lot of startups are funded based on basically the founders going literally their friends and family and, and raising funds from them and you know, in that instance, you can probably also still get by with documents, you know, that are, are not, you know, I mean, you need to have the documentation, you need to make sure that you're following all the rules, especially there can be some SEC implications, depending on how you go about raising funds. But again, so that's worth talking to a lawyer about. But the actual corporate formation documents don't need to be complex. But once you start talking with professional investors that you maybe don't know, you really do need to be working with a business attorney who focuses on that. And quite honestly, if you had gone and started with LegalZoom, they will probably at that point uh, want to create some new documents before you do the fundraising that are more comprehensive and everyone will agree to. And you will get uh, you know a bit more structure in place before you go through that, those steps. But again, when you get to that point of fundraising, you're going to know you have a lot of additional steps you need to go through. And so that will be a natural progression. On the intellectual property side, what I would say is that, you know, and this is part of the reason why I put information out there, why I have my book and why I have a blog and I have information on my website. There's a lot of work that you can do yourself. What I, I stress to people is that in a lot of ways, the most important part of your intellectual property for your business is to have a plan and don't do it haphazardly. Too many people and too many businesses just kind of think of it on an issue-by-issue issue basis and they say, oh, this is an invention. I should patent it. And so they go and do that without thinking through how that fits into their overall business and their overall plan. And so what I stress is that if you take the time to create a plan, it allows you to focus your resources in the best, most efficient way possible. It might be that when you actually do the work of thinking this through, you're going to say, hey, it's not worth spending five, ten thousand $10,000 to get a patent. Instead, I'm going to take that money and spend it over here on getting myself 10 different trademarks or uh, trademarks and some other protections. So the process is really about planning. The actual nuts and bolts of doing it, in my experience, are I won't say they're easy, 
but uh, they're rather routine. And again, you can go to LegalZoom for a lot of these different resources. You can go to places for trademarks, for example, who there are companies who have you know, attorneys who have a whole room full of paralegals who prepare the filings for them. So it's relatively cheap to get it done. So all of that can be done relatively cheaply on the order of 100 or $200 more than the filing fee. So you know, it shouldn't be a huge impediment for entrepreneurs. You talked about the importance of written agreements and also having an IP plan. And as you were describing both, it sounds like actually those are also important checks and balances for ensuring that your business decisions are sound, that as you said, you're focusing your resources efficiently in the service of the purpose and the mission of your business. That's right. The central premise I have is that law, at least with respect to what I do, should serve your business. And so uh, I view creating these plans in advance and taking these necessary steps just as a way to uh, help your business thrive and as part of your overall business strategy. It, it doesn't need to be something that becomes another thing on your, your checklist of things to do. It should be a way that you can Give yourself some peace of mind, for example, that you're not going to be sued or that you don't have huge chance of being sued and that it gives you peace of mind that if someone starts using your technology, you'll have options. So that that's the role that intellectual property should play in a business. And you offered some learning opportunities also in terms of written agreements. We were talking about LegalZoom and having an IP plan. The book that you've written, The Entrepreneur's IP Planning Playbook, sounds like an excellent resource to provide guidance and a lot of learning about this. Yeah, that's right. And also, again, I have a blog about where I post about a lot of things that people can go to and can find some information. But there's a lot of information out there. I think the – and maybe it's because different people learn differently and think differently – I've always been someone who likes to see kind of the overall structure first before I really start kind of drilling down into areas. And so my book is is partly to do that, to get people thinking about the different areas of intellectual property law, to hopefully get them in a, in a mode of what lawyers we like to call issue spotting. My goal is to to help business people to be able to say, hmm – I think this is an intellectual property issue. I think this is a trademark issue or you know, be able to spot the issue and maybe they can solve it themselves. But once they spot the issue, either they can do the research to figure out the answer or they know that maybe they need to talk to a lawyer to, to get some more information. So in some sense, that's the most important thing is to be able to understand when you have an issue and where there's an issue. And then once you do that, you can figure it out from there. You also oftentimes need to have a certain base of information to even be aware of what questions to ask, I would guess, from a lawyer. That's right. And, and so, that, again, that's in some sense, that's what I think of as issue spotting is have some basic information and, and be able to understand what it is you need to be looking for and then what information you need to be able to take to your attorney when you, you call them. I, I will often have prospective clients call me and they will say things and then I dig deeper and it's clear and it's not their – they're not obviously not trying to mislead me. They just don't understand these things because they're not attorneys. And so I've found that an educated client is a much better client. So I always try to educate my clients up front and give them the information they need. But more importantly, if you're a business person, you should want to have as much information as possible 
to be able to make the best decisions possible. So you're not simply outsourcing to someone, but you understand enough to make the decisions that are really right for your business. We can consider it burn prevention, right? It's like what we were talking about in our previous conversation, that it kind of bites when you only learn that uh, you violated a law when you get a ticket. (laughs) It's not necessarily the preferred way of learning. Right. You know, and look, there's some of that that happens, right? So, you know, I talk about the need for a written agreement and I made that my mistake myself. Uh, before I started my own law firm, I was working at another firm with or two other people who were partners. I was designated a partner, but I was, wasn't actually part of the partnership agreement. And I joined them at a time when the firm didn't have solid cash flow. And so I was, I had a salary that was set, but in my, agreement with him, the, the the letter I got, it said, but I understood that I would only get paid when the firm had money and that I understood the firm didn't have money. And so I had all the downside risk, but I didn't have anything in writing that said after so many years or here's how you will ultimately become part of the ownership structure. And then when we tried to work that out was, uh, you know, I raised the issue when my wife got pregnant and I thought, hey, I need to you know, we need to formalize this. And sadly, we weren't able to come to a resolution that we could all live with. And I lived through the pain of understanding that when you have those discussions later, it's a recipe not only for business problems, but also for kind of hurt feelings and personal issues that come from it. I mean, to give you a sense, one of those you know, partners had literally flown through a hurricane to get to my wedding. Uh, my wedding was in the Bahamas and it was interrupted by Hurricane Sandy. My partner at the time, he and, and his girlfriend flew down on literally the last flight that came in when they had already moved us to an alternate hotel because the alternate hotel had generators and things like that. And so, I mean, he went through that. But in the process of us trying to work out my entry into the partnership later, you know, it, it really soured that relationship for a while. And that's a, a sad thing to have gone through. And so I've experienced that. I understand that that can happen. And I can understand that that is likely to happen. So having lived through that, I want to help other entrepreneurs not make the same mistake that I did. Such a good point that you're bringing up when you feel that you have a strong connection with someone and you've built a base in your relationship, then sometimes it almost seems contrary to the trust of the relationship to put these legal measures in place. And what you're pointing out is that it's just really essential to actually preserving the relationship even. Yeah, that's right. And the the irony is, is I've, and I don't remember where I've read this, but I've read that to be an entrepreneur, you have to be an ultimate optimist because there are so many signs that say that you're, you're not likely to succeed. And so I think that's part of the reason why I, I see that issue so often of people not having written agreements because you just always expect that things are going to go great and that the people who are your co-founders and partners, we're always going to be on the same page. But the reality is – that it doesn't happen. And, and I don't think it's through malice. I mean, there are some cases where, you know, one party is just being obstinate and, and they know they are, and I think they probably recognize it. But I think most of these issues are just a matter of a good faith. I don't even want to say misunderstanding, but maybe people don't even remember what happened three years earlier. And, you know, someone said something offhand 
that the other person took as a very serious comment. So getting these things in writing is the best way to avoid those misunderstandings and make sure that everybody's on the same page and there's just no chance for hurt feelings about it. Bobby, also, it seems as though when you have a written agreement from an optimistic point of view, there's the opportunity to rewrite it, to make changes to it. There is. Obviously, you know, if you're going to rewrite it, there becomes an issue of everyone has to agree. And, and there, th- this is an issue that gets pretty in the weeds on, you know, depending on the situation, you can rewrite an agreement without the approval of all found or of all owners, but that can create some some consequences. But you will often have to do some rewrites later on some of the more detailed issues, like the buy-sell agreement, for example, and I think you can get agreement on that. But you fundamentally have to have an agreement from the outset on, on who owns what and what the responsibilities are, for example. So one issue that will often come up as a, a sore point is one person thinking the other, you know, another founder isn't pulling their weight, isn't actually putting in enough effort. Well, you know, and, and I've had this come up where you have these discussions, you know, I, I'm talking to a prospective client and one party says, well, I wasn't supposed to have to put in any work. I brought the, whether let's say I brought the idea, I brought the product or whatever it is, but then I wasn't supposed to have to put in any work, but they don't have a written agreement. And so the problem is then you're trying to reconstruct what, you know, the role was of everybody. So again, if someone is supposed to be a silent partner, you, you put that in. So it's very clear. They don't have to be working in the business. You just need to get all of those things really defined early on. Right. And I was bringing up the, the point about rewriting because I know sometimes people are concerned about having something set in stone that doesn't necessarily reflect their future needs. They're yeah. wor- right? They have worries about, about the unknowns in the future. Yeah. And, and in that case, you're right. I mean, it's so... Look, these agreements often will – you'll have to change them over time as as uh, things change. And as long as everyone can agree on it, you can always change these written documents. You can change your management agreement. You can change all of these things. The great thing is often the agreements will have a term that explains how you would go about changing them. So you will specifically define the steps to to make a change. And so that kind of smooths things along as well. You did – really present a checklist of sorts in terms of areas to cover for an agreement. If we're looking at it very specifically in terms of, let's say, industry or particular company or just specifics to the people involved in one organization, what's the best way to ensure that the most important bases are covered? Well, and again, so if it's the the founding documents, that's why I suggest, I mean, you have a couple of ways to do it is, is, you know, you could come meet with someone, but ultimately what you're trying to cover is who owns what, what the responsibilities are. And then this is kind of a bad thing to say, but it's, it's really the negatives. What happens if, so what happens in the case of a disagreement, what happens in the case of someone dying? So again, you might have some clause in there that essentially says that in case of one of the founders die, his heirs have to sell it back. My father was an entrepreneur. He owned a chain of drugstores with my uncle. And for whatever reason, they'd agreed that their wives would not be part of the business, would not be owners. So they, as part of their agreement, had a term that upon either of their death, 
the estate so that the, the wife or the family of the, the deceased partner would have to sell their interest back. And there was a process for doing that. So, you know, again, those are the types of issues of what do you do in death? What do you do in, in the, if, if one of the founders becomes disabled and can't work in the business and they were supposed to? Or what do you do in the case of a divorce. That's actually something that's coming up more and more is some of these agreements now will require uh, the founders to have prenuptial agreements with their spouses so that it's understood that in the case of divorce, the founder is going to keep 100% and their uh, now ex-wife or husband is not going to get a part of the business. So you know, it's, it's those types of things and they're all decisions you have to make of how you want to operate your business. But again, the best way to do it is to go to a place like a legal Zoom, which will, you know, it has a pretty good tool that just asks you basic questions about things like who the owner, you know, how many owners are, who they are, what are their percentages and things like that. And then it creates a pretty good starter agreement that you can operate that will cover most of your bases. Yeah, it sounds like that allows room for growth. It does, it, yeah. So... In addition to written agreements, having an IP plan, is there anything else that you would add in terms of common areas that you recommend startups and entrepreneurs cover? Yes. So the other kind of one, and this is a very specific issue that I see, is in the context of trademarks. And so trademarks are an area of intellectual property law that covers, that defines the source of a good or service. So it's something that that tells the market or tells customers what company or person is selling or making the product. So it's a, think of a brand name. Coca-Cola is a registered trademark. Uh, slogans like Just Do It are, are trademarks that tell you the source and you associate with a given company. And one of the mistakes that I see entrepreneurs and startups make is they will spend days, weeks, long periods of time coming up with what they think is the perfect name for their business or for their their flagship product or for something that's critical to their business. And then they don't do anything in the tr on the trademark front with respect to that name. And a lot of people think that the most important step is to actually go and file for a trademark. And in my opinion, that's not right. The most important step is to make sure that someone else isn't already using that trademark. Because if someone else is, they may be able to stop you from using it. And the problem is they're probably they're not going to stop you when you first launch in most cases because they're not going to know anything about you when you're little. They're going to hear about you once you get big and you've established a presence and you've spent time, money, sweat, and, and a bunch of other effort in building the goodwill in your brand name. And then the trademark owner may come out the woodwork and say, no, no, you can't use that name. And at that point, you may have to literally change your name as a business, which would have a serious negative consequences for you. So the mistake is not searching to make sure that someone else is not already using the name that you intend to use for your business. Bobby, what suggestions do you have around doing that due diligence? Well, so there's a couple of obvious steps. You can Go to the United States Patent and Trademark Office's website, and there is a, an online service where you can search for names within the trademark database, and that's looking in the federal registry. But beyond that, you should do simple things like go onto Google and type it in and see if anything comes up. 
if something comes up, that's probably a, a good sign that there's an issue. There's a number of steps and it depends on how much money and, and, and how important it is to you. You can have an attorney run a, a trademark search through various services. You know, so for example, I have access to various services where I could run a search and get results. Similarly, again, I've mentioned LegalZoom before. You can go to them. They have a, a search service as well, I believe. Problem with that is that if you get a result, and, and again, you can do it, and if you get no results and it's a clean report, you're in good shape. But if you get some results, you may want to talk to an attorney to get some guidance from them on whether it's a problem or whether it's something that they believe wouldn't stop you from using the mark. And part of it, if I understand correctly, is also about how the words combine with a logo that you have and the stylistic elements to determine how unique it is. Well, that's right. So there, there's various kinds of trademarks. You can have a trademark for the name. So for example, Coca-Cola is just the name itself as trademark, but they would also have a trademark on the stylized. I think you can picture the, I think it's cursive or whatever, the stylized written Coca-Cola. They would have a mark on. I believe, and I'm not 100% positive on this, but I believe they also have a trademark for the old kind of bottle shape as part of their logo. So you can have different layers of protection and Here's an example of one that people may not have thought of. If you write the word Texas in a certain font, it is actually a trademark of the University of Texas because the University of Texas has a trademark for that for their sports logo and sport memorabilia. So you know, there can be all kinds of layers of protection. If the name you're using is purely descriptive and doesn't have, you know, it's just generic and doesn't provide any information, you're not going to get much protection. So an example of the opposite of that is Apple. Apple has nothing to do with describing a computer or the service they provide. It's just this completely unrelated word that they chose. Well, that has the strongest level of protection as a trademark. Bobby, I know there's so much to discuss underneath this umbrella of common areas to focus on related to IP as an entrepreneur and startup. So I'm going to talk about some of the resources that you very generously offer. And before I do that, I just want to invite you to share any wrap-up comments that you'd like to make. Yeah, I, I, what the, the comments that I would make and my overall suggestion to people is don't let this seem like it's scary and overwhelming. There's a lot to intellectual property law, but you can understand it if you just take it one bite at a time and you just – Think it through and, and learn. And again, it doesn't have to be something that's going to take you years of your life to understand. You can get to the point that you understand the basics and can spot issues by spending less than a day understanding these issues. You know, I assume you'll mention my book, which is like 75 pages long, which will give you a pretty good start to understanding what you need to know. I appreciate your guidance so much and all of these resources that you offer and the stories that help us to connect uh, with also your experience as an entrepreneur. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'd like to invite you to sign up for Bobby's free four-part e-course, which is going to offer you a lot more information. It's called What Every Entrepreneur Should Know About Intellectual Property Planning. And it actually walks you through the process of developing an IP strategy conducting an IP audit, creating an IP plan. It's accessible through Bobby's website at www.clinkllc.com forward slash podcast. And Clink is spelled K-L-I-N-C-K-L-L-C.com forward slash podcast. 
The e-course also provides you with free access to Bobby's book, which is called The Entrepreneur's IP Planning Playbook, and also offers a number of checklists and forms that you can use. You can contact Bobby to learn more about his IP legal services for startups and entrepreneurs through his website, www.clinkllc.com. If you have comments or unanswered questions about today's episode, I'd love for you to share them by emailing me at hosthemda at gmail.com. You can also share comments and questions by following me on Twitter at Hemda Mizrahi and liking us on Facebook at Life and Career Choices. Until next time, remember to make the grass greener where you are. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, inviting you to turn the page. Thank you for tuning in to our program. Till next week's show, enjoy your weekend and make one change in your life before then.